Part two, chapter seven of The Life of Florence Nightingale, volume one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Life of Florence Nightingale, volume one, by Edward Tyus Cook. Part two, chapter seven, The Ministering Angel. Then in such hour of need, ye like angels appear radiant with ardor divine. Order, courage, return. Ye move through the ranks, recall the stragglers, refresh the outworn, praise, re-inspire the brave. Eyes rekindling and prayers follow your steps as ye go. Matthew Arnold in the preceding chapters we have seen at work the impelling power of a brain and a will, but with these Florence Nightingale brought to her mission the tenderness of a woman's heart. She was the matron of a hospital no less than a mistress of a barrack. She was a resolute administrator, but also, as was said at the time in a hundred speeches, letters, articles, when pain and anguish wring the brow, a ministering angel thou. Upon those behind the scenes, upon ministers and officials, it was the former side of her activity that made the profounder impression. Some of them applauded what she did, recognizing that only the advent of a new force could have driven away through the quagmire. Others complained that in her methods there was something too imperious and masterful. All alike perceived her power and strength of will. But to the sick and wounded among whom she lived and moved, and to the great public at home which heard of her work, it was the softer side of her character that made the more instant appeal. By them she was known and honored, not as the rigid disciplinarian or creative organizer, but as the compassionate and tender nurse. Those who had no means of knowing what other work she had to do supposed that ministration to the sick, in the narrower sense, comprised it all. But, in fact, as she wrote to Mr. Herbert, January 14, 1855, nursing was the least important of the functions to which she had been forced, and those on the spot who watched the arduousness of these other duties wished that she could be persuaded to spare herself more of one kind of work or of the other. The marvel is that in unstinted measure she combined them both. Her devotion and her power of work were prodigious. I work in the wards all day, she said, and write all night and this was hardly exaggeration. A letter from Miss Stanley, December 21, 1854, gives an interesting glimpse of Florence Nightingale at work in the Barrack Hospital. We turned up the stone stairs. On the second floor we came to the corridors of sick, on low wooden stands, raised about a foot from the floor, placed about two feet apart, and leaving two or three feet down the middle, along which we walked. The atmosphere worsened as we advanced. We passed down two or three of these immense corridors, asking our way as we went. At last we came to the guard room, another corridor, and then through a door into a large busy kitchen, where stood Mrs. Margaret Williams, who seemed much pleased to see me. Then a heavy curtain was raised. I went through a door, and there sat dear Flo, writing on a small unpainted deal table. I never saw her looking better. She had on her black merino, trimmed with black velvet, clean linen collar and cuffs, apron, white cap with a black handkerchief tied over it, and there was Mrs. Bracebridge, looking so nice too. 
I was quite satisfied with my welcome. A stream of people every minute. Please, ma'am, do you have any black-edged paper? Please, what can you give which would keep on his stomach? Is there any arrowroot today for him? No, the tubs of arrowroot must be for the worst cases. We cannot spare him any, nor is there any jelly today. Try him with some eggs. Please, Mr. Gordon, the chief engineer, wishes to see Miss Nightingale about the orders she gave him. Mr. Sabin comes in for something else. Mr. Bracebridge in and out about General Adams and orders of various kinds. The occasion described by Miss Stanley was post-day. Still busier were the awful nights on which fresh consignments of sick and wounded arrived from the Crimea. Miss Nightingale has been known, said General Bentick, to pass eight hours on her knees dressing wounds and administering comfort. There were times when she stood for twenty hours at a stretch, apportioning quarters, distributing stores, directing the labors of her staff, or assisting at the painful operations where her presence might soothe or support. She had, said Mr. Osborne, an utter disregard of contagion. I have known her to spend hours over men dying of cholera or fever, the more awful to every sense, any particular case, especially if it was that of a dying man, the more certainly might her slight form be seen bending over him, administering to his ease by every means in her power, and seldom quitting his side till death released him. We cannot, wrote Mr. Bracebridge to her uncle, Mr. Smith, December 18, 1854, prevent her self-sacrifice for the dying. She cannot delegate as we could wish, but the cases are so interesting and painful, who could leave them when once taken up? Boys and brave men dying who can be saved by nursing and proper diet. It is recorded that on one occasion she saw five soldiers set aside as hopeless cases. The first duty of the overworked surgeons was with those whom there seemed to be more hope of saving. She was glad to be given the care of the five men, and the surgeons consented. Assisted by one of her nurses, she tended the cases throughout the night, administering nourishment from her stores, and in the morning they were found to be in a fit condition for surgical treatment. Miss Nightingale, said a Chelsea pensioner, in recalling his experiences at Scutari, was always coming in and out. She used to attend to all the worst cases herself. Some of the new men were a bit shy at first, but many times I've heard her say, Never be ashamed of your wounds, my friend. I believe, wrote a civilian doctor who saw her at work, that there was never a severe case of any kind that escaped her notice, and sometimes it was wonderful to see her at the bedside of a patient who had been admitted perhaps but an hour before, and of whose arrival one would hardly have supposed it possible she could be already cognizant. Sometimes when exhausted nature could not be denied repose, she would depute the last sad office to another lady. Selina, Mrs. Bracebridge, is sitting up with a dying man, Florence at last asleep, 1 a.m. Her days were always long, for she deemed it well not to allow any of her nurses to be in the wards after eight at night, and often, when all else was quiet and she had been sitting up to finish her heavy correspondence, she would make a final tour of the wards. A lady volunteer, who two days after her arrival was sent for to accompany Miss Nightingale on such a tour, recalled the scene. We went round the whole of the second story, into many of the wards, and into one of the upper corridors. It seemed an endless walk, and it was not one easily forgotten. As we slowly passed along, the silence was profound. Very seldom did a moan or cry from these deeply suffering ones fall on our ears. 
A dim light burned here and there. Miss Nightingale carried her lantern, which she would set down before she bent over any of the patients. I much admired her manner to the men. It was so tender and kind. The description of these midnight vigils, given by Mr. MacDonald, the commissioner of the Times Fund, became famous by adaptation throughout the world. Wherever there is disease in its most dangerous form, and the hand of the despoiler distressingly nigh, there is that incomparable woman sure to be seen. Her benignant presence is an influence for good comfort, even amid the struggles of expiring nature. She is a ministering angel without any exaggeration in these hospitals, and as her slender form glides quietly along each corridor, every poor fellow's face softens with gratitude at the sight of her. When all the medical officers have retired for the night, and silence and darkness have settled down upon those miles of prostrate sick, she may be observed alone, with a little lamp in her hand, making her solitary rounds. Famous, too, became the words which one poor fellow sent home. What a comfort it was to see her pass, even. She would speak to one, and nod and smile to as many more, but she could not do it all, you know. We lay there by hundreds, but we could kiss her shadow as it fell, and lay our heads on the pillow again, content. Before she came, said another soldier's letter, there was cussin' and swearin', but after that it was holy as a church. Mr. Sidney Herbert read out these letters at a public meeting in November 1855. Lord Ellesmere used Mr. MacDonald's description in the House of Lords in May 1856, and Longfellow, in the following year, made a poem of it all, one of the most widely known poems, I suppose, that has ever been written. Lo, in that hour of misery, a lady with a lamp, I see, pass through the glimmering gloom, and flit from room to room, and slow, as in a dream of bliss, the speechless sufferer turns to kiss her shadow as it falls upon the darkening walls. The men idolized her, they kissed her shadow, and they saluted her as she passed down their wounded ranks. If the queen came for to die, said a soldier, who lost a leg at the Alma, they ought to make her queen, and I think they would. Her lively sense of humor, which Mr. Osborne had discerned in talks with her in the hospital, was appreciated also by the patients. She was wonderful, said one, at cheering up anyone who was a bit low. She was all full of life and fun, said another, when she talked to us, especially if a man was a bit downhearted. Who can tell what comfort was brought by the sound of a woman's gentle voice, the touch of a woman's gentle hand, to many a poor fellow racked by fever or smarting from sores? And who can say how often her presence may have been as a cup of strength in some great agony? The magic of her power over men was felt, as Kinglake had described, in the room, the dreaded, the blood-stained room, where operations took place. There, perhaps, the maimed soldier, if not yet resigned to his fate, might at first be craving death rather than meet the knife of the surgeon. But, when such a one looked, and saw that the honored lady-in-chief was patiently standing beside him, and, with lips closed, set, and hands folded, decreeing herself to go through the pain of witnessing pain, he used to fall into the mood for obeying her silent command, and, finding strange support in her presence, bring himself to submit and endure. And when the hour of death came, how often must the passing have been soothed by a presence which, 
with words of womanly comfort, may have carried the soldier's last thoughts back to home and wife or child. A member of Parliament, well known in London society, Mr. Augustus Stafford, went out during the recess of 1854 to Scutari and made himself very useful to Miss Nightingale. He says, wrote Monckton Milnes, that Florence in the hospital makes intelligible to him the saints of the Middle Ages. If the soldiers were told that the roof had opened and she had gone up palpably to heaven, they would not be the least surprised. They quite believe she is in several places at once. They were impressed by her power, no less than they were touched by her tenderness, and ascribed to the lady-in-chief the gifts of leadership in the field. If she were at their head, they would be in Sebastopol in a week, was a saying often heard in the hospital wards. 2. Of all the documents that have passed under my eyes in writing this memoir, none have touched me more than a bundle of letters to and from friends and relatives of Crimean soldiers. Miss Nightingale was careful to take note of any dying man's last wishes or messages, and the letters in which she forwarded these, to wife or mother, must, by their touch of womanly sympathy, have brought balm to many a stricken heart. My dear Miss, writes one mother, I feel the loss of my poor son's death very keenly, but if anything could help in my grief, it is the thought that he was looked to and cared for by kind friends when so many miles away from his native land. I beg, writes a sister, to return you my grateful thanks for all your kindness to my poor dear brother, and for writing to tell me of his death. It is great consolation to know that both his soul and body were so kindly cared for. I can assure you, writes another, that you are beloved by every poor soldier I have seen. Correspondence of this kind continued in the same manner when Miss Nightingale passed on from Scutari to the Crimea. One letter to a bereaved mother may be given as a representative of many. The first time I saw your son was in going round the wards in the general hospital at Balaclava. He had been brought in in the morning. He was always conscious and remained so till the very last. He prayed aloud so beautifully that, as the nurse in charge said, it was like a sermon to hear him. He asked to see Miss Nightingale. He knew me and expressed himself to me as entirely resigned to die. He pressed my hand when he could not speak. He died in the night. He was decently interred in a burial ground we have about a mile from Balaclava. One of my own sisters lies in the same ground, to whom I have erected a monument. Should you wish anything similar to be done over the grave of your lost son, I will endeavor to gratify you if you will inform me of your wishes. With true sympathy for your loss, I remain, dear madam, yours sincerely, Florence Nightingale. There is another bundle, hardly less touching, which contains letters of anxious inquiry addressed to Miss Nightingale from all parts of the United Kingdom, begging her to send, if she can, particulars of the whereabouts, or of the illness, or the last hours of husband, brother, father, or son. In order that you may know him, writes one fond mother, he is a straight, nice, clean-looking, light-complexioned youth. Died in hospital in good frame of mind, was Miss Nightingale's docket for the reply. Every letter was carefully answered, and every message was, I doubt not, given whenever it was in her power to do so. Many are the blessings invoked on Miss Nightingale's head. Often the writer begins by explaining that the newspapers have told of her great kindness, and so she will forgive the intrusion. Others show that they take all that for granted by beginning, Dear friend, or ending, yours affectionately. Many wives beg her to let the soldier know that the children are well and happy, 
and one letter sends a message to a wounded lancer from a girl he left behind him. If alive, please mention my name to him. 3. The strain upon Miss Nightingale's physical and mental powers was incessant. Her health, as it proved in the end, was seriously impaired, but during all her work at Scutari she was never absent from her post. You have the best opportunities, she was asked by the Royal Commission of 1857, for observing the condition of the soldier when he entered the hospitals, while he resided in them, when he died and was sent to the cemeteries, when he was sent home as an invalid, and when he rejoined the army? Yes, she answered, I was never out of the hospitals. During the worst times of cholera and typhus, three of her nurses died and seven of the army doctors. Miss Nightingale tended two of the doctors in their last moments, and the thinning, for a while, of the medical ranks increased her labors. The amount of clerical work which devolved on her was, it may well be imagined, enormous. Lady Alicia Blackwood records that when she was starting a school in the women's and children's quarters at Scutari, Miss Nightingale said laughingly, Oh, are you really going to do that unkind thing, to teach children to write? I am so tired of writing, I sometimes wish I could not write. The laugh must have had a certain grimness in it, I fear. The extent of the correspondence which Miss Nightingale kept up with ministers at home, with military or medical officers at the seat of war and at Scutari, may be gathered from the foregoing chapters. Her superintendence of the nurses entailed in account-keeping and in letters to complainants among them, and to their relatives, another mass of correspondence. Then I find next, amongst her papers, piles of storekeeping accounts, mostly in her own handwriting, and other bundles of correspondence referring to offers of help in money or in kind. That Miss Nightingale ultimately broke down under the strain was natural. The marvel is that she bore up against it so long. She could not have coped with the mass of detail involved in her multifarious labors without a good deal of help. To Mr. Macdonald's assistance I have already referred, and like assistance was rendered for a time by the Reverend and Honorable Sidney Godofin Osborne, the famous SGO of Letters to the Times. Mr. Kinglake devotes a charming page to the enthusiastic young fellow who, abandoning his life of ease, pleasure, and luxury, went out, as he probably phrased it, to fag for the lady-in-chief. The reference is probably to Mr. Percy, mentioned in a previous chapter, or possibly to Mr. William Shore, a distant relative of Miss Nightingale's father. He was put in charge of a soldier's library. But it was Miss Nightingale's old friends, Mr. and Mrs. Bracebridge, who rendered the longest and the most helpful aid. Mrs. Bracebridge shared alike her room and her labors, and with Mr. Bracebridge cared, as we have heard, for the soldiers' wives. But Mr. Bracebridge did much else. His knowledge of the East, and his persevering good humor, determined to help everybody about everything, were invaluable. Faithful, cheery, and indefatigable, no less now among the arduous labors of Scutari than in former days of sightseeing at Rome and in Egypt, he fetched and carried for Miss Nightingale, wrote letters or orders for her, and kept minutes of her interviews, and, at times of less strain, relieved her visitors or callers by taking them for excursions in the Straits or to Constantinople. 4. Miss Nightingale's thoughtfulness devised many practical ways of helping the men who were not too ill to think of their worldly affairs. In order to encourage them as much as possible to occupy themselves and keep up a communication with home, she supplied stationery and postage stamps to those in hospital. 
If a soldier was illiterate or too ill to write, she or one of her nurses, or some other volunteer, would write at the sick man's dictation. Mr. Augustus Stafford, as mentioned above, spent some portion of the autumn recess, November to December 1854, at Scutari, and he gave his experiences to the Roebuck Committee. He described the pitiable condition of the wounded on their arrival, their thigh and shoulder bones perfectly red from rubbing against the deck of the vessel which had brought them from the Crimea. But then Miss Nightingale's nurses came round, and with a precision and rapidity which you would scarcely believe would bring the soldiers arrowroot mixed with port wine, which was the greatest comfort, the men expressed themselves very thankfully, and said that they felt themselves in heaven. But it was in writing letters for the soldiers that this cherished yet unspoilt favorite of English society spent most of his time at Scutari. Of Miss Nightingale's reading rooms some account will be found in another chapter. She was much touched by the men's appreciation of these attentions, and she was no less impressed by the conduct of the orderlies in the hospitals. In describing to the Secretary of State certain sanitary reforms which she carried out in the hospitals of Scutari, she wrote, I must pay my tribute to the instinctive delicacy, the ready attention of orderlies and patients during all that dreadful period. For my sake they performed offices of this kind, which they neither would, for the sake of discipline, nor for that of the importance to their own health, which they did not know. And never was there one word nor one look which a gentleman would not have used. And while paying this humble tribute to humble courtesy, the tears come into my eyes as I think how, amid scenes of loathsome disease and death, there rose above it all the innate dignity, gentleness, and chivalry of the men, for never, surely, was chivalry so strikingly exemplified, shining in the midst of what must be considered as the lowest sinks of human misery, and preventing instinctively the use of one expression which could distress a gentlewoman. Even in the lowest sinks of human misery, there are chords which will respond to a sympathetic touch. It was the innate dignity of her bearing that struck everyone who saw Florence Nightingale, and, amidst these scenes of loathsome disease and death, she was herself the sweet presence of a good diffused. End of chapter 7